yeah, Lauren was my neighbor. Um, we're just trying to find out where she is at this point. I mean, no one has seen her since Saturday. I mean, the last time anyone heard from her was an email that she sent out, and I mean, no one's heard from her since. And did you see her hang out with anyone at the time, anything like that? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, you always hear noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah, she and I, were we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because I mean, we went at, we went over. One of her friends had a key. We went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss. But I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we we just don't know where she is. I mean, what about um in the like the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of. I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Um, had you heard? Any, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I, I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I, I think I need to sit down. Okay. The clip you just listened to was originally aired on the Macon Telegraph's News Talk Central morning program. It was filmed on the morning of June 30th, 2011, around 9.30 or 10 a.m. It is an interview with Stephen McDaniel, a law student at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. Stephen and the reporter are standing outside of Barrister's Hall, a residence hall which caters exclusively to law students where Stephen lives. Stephen's neighbor, Lauren Giddings, has not been seen or heard from since the evening of June 25th, nearly five days earlier. I'll put a link to the entire interview in the show notes for this episode. It's about 12 minutes long and it's worth watching the whole thing, just to get a better sense of Stephen and how his demeanor changes throughout. When the reporter tells Stephen that a body has been found, he certainly appears to be in shock. His facial expression, partly hidden behind the mass of untamed curls, suddenly changes. He looks like he's seen a ghost. One second, he is talkative and forthcoming. The next, he appears lost for words. Was he stunned into silence because he found out that his neighbor was dead? Or was it because her body had been discovered, despite his best efforts to dispose of it? I'm your host, Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 11, The Murder of Lauren Giddings. Lauren Giddings' family were extremely proud of her, and they had good reason to be. Lauren was the first in the family to attend college. 
she was driven, enthusiastic, and ambitious, so going into the legal profession made a lot of sense. Lauren was the first child born to Karen and Bill Giddings on April 18, 1984, in Tacoma Park, Maryland. She had two younger sisters, Caitlin and Sarah. Lauren loved animals, especially dogs. She cherished her Pekingese named Butterbean. Lauren was popular in school and made friends easily. She was always good at staying in touch. Despite being thousands of miles away and busy with her last year of law school, she and her two best friends from elementary school, Lori and Katie, continued to be very close. Initially, Lauren hoped to become a doctor, but decided medicine was not for her. She set her sights on studying law, specifically becoming a public defender. Lauren had always been drawn to the southern United States, particularly the country music scene. So when it was time to pick where she would attend college as an undergraduate, Lauren chose Agnes Scott College, a small women's liberal arts school in Decatur, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. She graduated in 2006 with a major in political science and a minor in religious studies. In August 2008, 24-year-old Lauren enrolled at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia to study law. There was so much more to Lauren than her academic achievements and plans to become a lawyer. She was kind, thoughtful, and caring. It was in her nature to always see the best in people. Stephen Mark McDaniel, Lauren's neighbor at Mercer, was born September 9, 1985, to Mark and Glenda McDaniel. He grew up in Lilburn, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. Stephen had a wide range of interests as a boy. He enjoyed puzzles, Lord of the Rings, and Star Wars. Reading was one of his favorite pastimes, particularly history and adventure books. He and his father shared a passion for samurai films. Even as a small child, Stephen was obsessively neat, so much so that his family referred to him as Mr. Clean. This obsession with neatness never let up, Throughout his teenage years and into adulthood, Stephen was always careful to keep everything in order. Until he was 13, he sang in the Atlanta Boys Choir as an alto. Even after leaving the choir, his dedication to church and religion endured. Stephen wanted others to have the same opportunities to practice their faith as he did, so he joined a group which traveled around the state, restoring places of worship. From an early age, Stephen admired the likes of Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. Politically, he was very conservative. He was also highly intelligent and worked hard in high school. When he graduated in 2004, he earned a presidential scholarship to Mercer University. As an undergraduate, he majored in business. After graduation, he enrolled in Mercer Law School in the same starting class as Lauren Giddings. Stephen aimed high, hoping to one day become a federal judge. In college, Stephen mainly kept to himself, working hard and spending a lot of time in his room. He was shy and awkward around other students. He did not drink or do drugs and almost never went out to bars. His mother insisted that Stephen was quote-unquote not a hermit. He was just very focused on his work. He had to be, as he took a full course load every year during university. 
In his first year, he joined Mercer's chapter of the Federalist Society, which Lauren was also a part of. The Federalist Society is an organization of 70,000 lawyers, law students, scholars, and other individuals. The society defines itself as a group of conservatives and libertarians, quote-unquote, committed to the following principles. The state exists to preserve freedom. The separation of governmental powers is central to the Constitution and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Six out of nine of the current Supreme Court justices are current or former members of the Federalist Society. Stephen and Lauren remained members of the society throughout their time at law school. In fact, in their final year, Lauren was elected president of the society and Stephen the vice president. A fellow member described Stephen as dependable as hell. If we needed a cooler full of ice, the cooler was full of ice. If we needed flyers put up, they got put up. Lauren and Stephen moved into Barrister's Hall in the same week in August 2008. Other students considered Stephen to be eccentric and a bit strange and never made much of an effort with him. Stephen is six feet tall and lanky. He has a wild, unkempt mane of mousy brown curls and a shadow of a mustache and beard. He did not put a lot of thought into his appearance and always looked a little tired and disheveled. Regardless of what others thought, Lauren was always nice to Stephen, even if she did find him a little odd. While they weren't friends, they were friendly, and she always chatted to him when they saw each other in the hall. After moving into the apartment building in 2008, Stephen asked Lauren out several times. Each time she declined, but she was always nice about it and let him down gently. Lauren had a boyfriend, David Vandiver, a lawyer in Atlanta. In 2007, the pair met when Lauren was interning at the law firm where David worked. Lauren was 23 at the time, and David was 20 years older than her. In September 2007, they began dating. The age difference did not bother Lauren. She really liked David. They just clicked right away. They had a lot in common and a similar sense of humor. Their four-year anniversary would have been in the fall of 2011. After she passed the bar exam, Lauren planned to move in with David in Atlanta. I thought she was beautiful, intelligent, level-headed, laid-back, very unassuming, sharp-witted, and always could make me laugh. And I could always make her laugh, David said in a later interview. On June 26, 2011, David was in California on a golf trip. He was the last person Lauren communicated with before she disappeared. On the evening of June 25th, she wrote him an email which covered a range of topics. According to David, the email started with the line, I just had an awkward conversation, referring to a conversation Lauren had with a friend who was asking probing questions about their, Lauren and David's, relationship. She also wrote about moving out of her apartment. One part of the email that was rather alarming, given the events that would soon unfold, was her mention that she thought someone had tried to break into her apartment on Thursday night. But from the way she wrote it, she did not seem all that concerned, referring to whoever it was as Macon Hoodlums. 
David was on the way to the airport in California when the email came through, and he did not reply. He said he wanted to talk to her about these issues in person, but Lauren would never be heard from again. In May 2011, Lauren and Stephen both graduated from Mercer Law School. All they had to do was pass the bar exam, and they would officially be certified to practice law. Lauren, Stephen, and their classmates spent much of that June holed up in their rooms, their faces buried deep in their books. Lauren told her friends and family that she would be studying pretty much constantly, therefore they shouldn't worry if she didn't always answer their phone calls and text messages right away. Katie O'Hare, who I mentioned earlier, was one of Lauren's best friends from elementary school. Katie was still living in Maryland, employed as a healthcare worker. By Wednesday, June 29th, she was concerned that she hadn't heard anything from Lauren for four days. She knew that Lauren was busy, but Katie was sure that she would have replied to at least one of her messages by that time, even if it was just a line or two. It was Katie who sounded the alarm about Lauren's uncharacteristic silence. And she was right to do so. She began contacting other mutual friends and Lauren's family, asking if anyone had heard from her. But nobody had. Not since the email Lauren sent to David on Saturday evening. The last time friends had seen Lauren was Saturday morning. The previous evening, Friday the 24th, Lauren and several friends had gone out for drinks and to listen to music downtown. Lauren crashed at a friend's house that night and left in the morning. After she left, she went to the Macon Country Club to swim and relax by the pool. David gave her his pass to use while he was away in California that weekend. At around 6.30, she got something to eat from a fast food restaurant and headed back to her apartment. Lauren's sister, Caitlin Wheeler, called a law school classmate and good friend of Lauren's, Ashley Morehouse. Caitlin asked if Ashley could go knock on Lauren's apartment door. Ashley agreed, but when she went to Lauren's apartment, there was no answer. The door was locked. She did, however, see Lauren's car parked outside. Ashley called Caitlin back, telling her that her sister was not in her apartment. Despite being in different parts of the country, Lauren's friends and family simultaneously got a dreadful feeling that something was horribly wrong. On Wednesday evening, Lauren's other childhood best friend, Lori Sespic, who was living in Chicago and had also been trying to get in touch with Lauren for several days, called Macon police to inquire about filing a missing persons report. In response to Lori's call, an officer went to Barrister's Hall around 11 p.m. There was no sign of forced entry into Lauren's apartment. Everything seemed secure. Ashley Morehouse, who knew where Lauren kept her spare key, decided she would use it to enter the apartment. She and a small group of friends who also lived in Barrister's Hall went inside. They found all of Lauren's personal items, including her keys, purse, cell phone, and laptop, but Lauren was nowhere to be found. At some point, while Lauren's friends were looking around her apartment, Stephen McDaniel appeared. They found his presence a little odd. The group were deeply concerned by the fact that all of Lauren's belongings, that she would have taken with her if she had gone anywhere, were still there, but Lauren wasn't. The cell phone was out of battery. On plugging it in, they discovered that the last time Lauren had made any calls or sent any text messages was Saturday. 
The group in Lauren's apartment called 911. It had become clear to everyone that Lauren had been missing for four days, so they had good reason to be worried. Two Mercer University police officers arrived and spoke to the students who had been inside Lauren's apartment. The university police were alarmed at what they heard and called for Macon PD to assist. An officer from Macon PD arrived at 12.52 a.m. Together, the officers and the students searched the apartment building, the surrounding area, and the library. There was no sign of Lauren. At around 3 a.m., the Macon police officer left. At 9 a.m. on Thursday the 30th, an official investigation into Lauren's disappearance was launched. Dozens of police officers descended on Barrister's Hall, searching the area and interviewing all residents, including Stephen McDaniel. Less than an hour after the investigation was officially launched, two detectives entered the area to the left of the apartment complex where the large trash bins were kept. Before they had much chance to look around, they noticed a foul odor coming from one of the bins. They knew that smell, and it was always bad news, especially during a search for a missing person. In a later interview for the Oxygen documentary in Ice Cold Blood, one of the detectives said, While we were standing there, the wind started to turn. Immediately, I smelled an odor that I was very familiar with. We all smell things in life that smell bad, and that of a body, or a decomposing body, is one of the worst things you'll smell. The detectives began searching through the trash bin where the smell was emanating from. The bin was, of course, full of trash. But it didn't take long for them to find the source of the smell, and it was horrifying. Lying amongst heaps of garbage and wrapped in black trash bags was a woman's torso. The detective added, They did not find the head, legs, or arms in either one of the trash cans. I had never seen anything like that before. Who could have done this? Because truthfully, only a monster could do something like that. It was absolutely horrible. As this was all happening, Stephen is being interviewed by the media, shown in the clip I played at the beginning of this episode. Once he has composed himself after finding out about the discovery of the body part, Stephen returns and continues the interview with the reporter. Thursday was garbage day at the Barrister's Hall apartment complex, but the path for the garbage truck had been blocked as a result of there being so many law enforcement vehicles surrounding the building. If the garbage had been transferred to landfill when it was supposed to be, it's likely that investigators would never have found the torso. If that trash had been picked up, we'd still be working a missing persons case, Detective David Patterson of the Macon PD told the local media. Just to skip ahead very briefly, on July 6th, they announced that DNA testing confirmed that the torso did belong to Lauren Giddings. Detectives began asking residents of the apartment complex if they could do quick walkthroughs of their individual apartments. These were voluntary, and residents could say no, but they all agreed to let the police in. When they asked Stephen, however, he was hesitant. 
Detectives told him that everybody else in the apartment complex had allowed them entry. At this, Stephen let them in. On conducting their walkthrough of Stephen's apartment, they took note of the following items. A large knife, a samurai sword, a rifle, and two handguns. While it was not illegal for Stephen to own any of these items, they did catch the detective's attention. Cadaver dogs were brought into the apartment complex and walked all around the building. The areas they alerted on included outside Lauren's apartment and in her bathroom, outside Stephen's apartment and in his bedroom, the vacant apartment below Lauren's, and the shared laundry room. I'm not 100% sure how this came to be, but Stephen ended up being arrested and charged later that day after he admitted to police that he had stolen condoms from neighboring apartments several weeks earlier. At this point, detectives were pretty suspicious of Stephen, given the array of weapons they found in his apartment and the cadaver dogs hitting on scent in his room. While at the police station for his burglary charge, Stephen was interviewed by the police about Lauren. This was just after 11 p.m. on June 30th. I'm going to play a few clips from the interview. The following is from the beginning. All right. I just got to ask you a few questions. Okay. Uh, you came down earlier tonight. Me and you talked, all right? You don't have any weapons on you, do you? No. That's just you. What's wrong? You know I'm Detective Patterson, right? Yes. Do you remember? Put your hands up here. You remember us talking yes. earlier tonight, right? Yes. You remember me earlier in the day? Yes. When we came down here and talked a little bit and then we left? Yes. Okay. I need to know about this girl right here. You know her? Yes. Who is that? Lauren Giddings. Does she live next door to you? Yes. When's the last time you seen her? Two or three weeks ago. Okay. Was you friends with Lauren? Yes. Look at me when you talk to me, son. Okay? Was you friends with her? Yes. Close friends? We were good I friends. mean, y'all were friends, right? Both yes. of y'all were law students. You're studying to be an attorney, right? Yes. What kind of law do you want to go into? Criminal law? Yes. Civil? Is that what you want to do for a living? Yes. Okay. Are you almost finished? Yes. Okay. So you don't have too much more to do, right? No. All right. Are you going to stay here in Macon? I don't know. Did you used to work at the district attorney's office in Macon? Yes. Was you on the prosecutor side or the defense side? Prosecutor. So you were on our side. Yes. <laughs> right. You never worked on the other side? No. Did you like it when you were down there? Yes. Uh, got along with everybody? Yes. Okay. And you've lived next to Lauren for a long time? Yes. Okay. Do you know where she's at tonight? No. Hmm? No. Have you ever seen her with that dress on? No. You have no idea where she's at? No. Look, just tell me what happened, brother. I don't know. Well, where's she at? I need you. I'm asking you for your help. I'm a detective, and I'm asking you for your help, okay? I'm asking you for help. I need your help. Can you help me? I don't know. You don't know if you can help me? Yes. I need your help. Help me out. Tell me what to do. Has anybody asked you for help today? 
I need your help. I'm asking you as a friend for help. Can you help me? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You can't help a friend out? I don't know what you need. I need to know where Lauren's at. I don't know. When's the last time you seen her? Two or three weeks ago. Has anybody, have you ever seen anybody over her house the last couple nights? No. Okay. If you knew where she was, would you tell me? Yes. What do you think happened to her? I don't know. Do you even care that no one can find her? Yes. I mean, I don't know, do you? Yes. Do you have a girlfriend? No. Did you think Lauren was your girlfriend? No. The detective gets irritated with Stephen answering I don't know to every question. He compares Stephen running his mouth to the reporter that morning with the way he is acting during the interview. You don't know. No. That's what you want me to tell her mother and her father, is that you don't know. I don't know. Not that you're sorry that she's missing. Not that you've been trying to help me all day find her, but you just wanted me to tell her I don't know. I don't know. Are you a sorry piece of shit that you want me to tell her that? You got your ass on that fucking news and stood out there and gave a media report that her mother saw about her missing daughter. And you want me to sit there and tell them that you don't know. Is that what you want me to tell them? Because you're all over the news. You sure stood out there and ran your mouth to the news media. But now you're going to get out here and you don't fucking know. You know. You're just a sorry piece of shit that don't give a fuck. Right? Yeah. Well, why'd you tell the media everything? Do you need to see what you told the media today? Yes. It was on the 11 o'clock news. Well, I'm asking you. Tell me. I want to know. I don't know where she is. That ain't what you told the media. You didn't stand in front of that camera and say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. A second detective enters and starts questioning Stephen about his guns. What's up, buddy? Did you talk to him about his guns? Yeah. When was the last time you shot those guns? I haven't. You've never shot a gun? No. Have you ever shot any gun in your whole life? No. Never? No. So you bought three guns that you've never shot? Yes. Why? For what? To have. For what? I'm asking for what? Why do you want to have them? What makes, did they give you, I mean, tell me why it's important to you to have three guns. That's an easy question. Come on, talk to me, buddy. Me and you talked all day today. We ain't had a problem communicating. Why is it important for you to have three guns? Do you not know? No. Okay. 
The whole interview lasts two hours, and you don't need to watch it all, but I recommend watching just a few minutes to get an idea of how different Stephen is here compared with his interview that morning with the reporter. You'll notice that during his police interview, Stephen acts like he is in a daze, barely able to answer questions. He sits completely still and stares straight ahead, totally expressionless. With the reporter, he was animated and answered questions with ease, giving long and detailed responses. The following day, July 1st, Stephen appears in court. He is charged with two counts of burglary and is denied a request for bail. The same day, the police serve Stephen with a warrant to search his apartment. Here is a list of the items they seize. Two handguns, a rifle, rope, four baseball bats, a bayonet, a chainmail vest, a camera, a laptop, a cell phone, an external card drive and a memory card reader, receipts, a green scrubbing sponge, two keys, and a journal. They also searched Stephen's car, a black 1997 Geo Prism, taking fabric samples from the back seat, as there were dark stains on the seat that looked like dried blood. An earring was also recovered from the car that investigators thought might belong to Lauren. Stephen did not have pierced ears. At the jail, they served a search warrant on Stephen himself, taking hair samples, cheek swabs, fingernail scrapings, and photos of Stephen. By July 20th, Stephen was still in jail. Everything goes quite quickly from here with regards to the investigation. Between July 12th and July 21st, the police searched Stephen's apartment several more times. They seized more items during these subsequent searches, including a Sony PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 2, a Microsoft Xbox gaming system and accessories, compact discs, memory sticks and memory cards, a laptop, which I'm assuming was an additional laptop, different from the one they seized during the previous search, a camera, two adult magazines, a pair of women's underwear, which were found to have Lauren's DNA on them, and packaging for a Stanley hacksaw. The memory sticks that were seized were examined by a forensic computer specialist, in another sickening twist, they were found to have 52 indecent images of children on them. On searching Stephen's laptop, they discovered some deeply disturbing internet searches he had made. Some were specifically about Lauren. He had searched all over the internet for her name, went on her Twitter page countless times, and searched quote-unquote nude Lauren Giddings. There were other searches that were just generally perverted and disgusting. For example, he searched quote-unquote molest sleeping girl. He had also visited erotic websites that featured cannibalism and websites with illustrations of a dismembered female. On the day Lauren's body was found, he searched how to permanently erase search history. On August 2nd, 2011, Police issued an arrest warrant charging Stephen McDaniel with the murder of Lauren Giddings. Here are some of the pieces of evidence they referred to in the arrest warrant. Investigators recovered a hacksaw at Barrister's Hall, which I believe had been hidden in the laundry room. Forensic examination of the hacksaw would reveal that it had traces of Lauren's DNA on it. 
The packaging for the hacksaw was found in Stephen's apartment. One of the keys they seized from Stephen's room turned out to be a master key, which would have given him access to every apartment in Barrister's Hall. Shortly after Lauren's torso was found, investigators received a call from a roommate of Stephen's during his undergraduate days at Mercer. Stephen's roommate, Thad Money, told police that when they lived together, Stephen would often tell him about how he could commit the perfect murder and never get caught. The following day, August 3rd, Stephen appeared in court for the murder charge. He pleaded not guilty. On August 23, 2011, Stephen was charged with seven counts of child sexual exploitation for the child pornography found on the memory stick in his apartment. In December 2011, Stephen pleaded not guilty to these charges. The judge set Stephen's bond at $850,000, which his family could not pay. Stephen remained in jail awaiting his trial. On February 21, 2013, prosecutors announced that they would not pursue the death penalty. In regards to this development, Bibb County District Attorney David Cook put out a statement in which he explained the reasoning behind this. He met with Lauren's parents and they asked him to withdraw the death notice. While they believed that Stephen McDaniel should be punished to the fullest extent of the law, they recognized that withdrawing the death notice would allow the case to proceed in a more timely fashion, and the state would achieve justice for Lauren sooner. In an unexpected move, Stephen pleaded guilty to Lauren's murder on April 21, 2014, just one week before his trial was due to begin. We felt like Stephen thought he was smarter than everyone else, that he was going to win until the end, said Bibb County Sheriff's Office investigator David Patterson, expressing his surprise at Stephen's decision to plead guilty and not go to trial. As part of the plea deal, he had to give a statement detailing exactly what happened to Lauren the night she was murdered. The prosecution agreed to drop the burglary and child sexual exploitation charges in exchange for Stephen accepting the deal. Cook explained that the deal was made partly as a result of the prosecution taking the death penalty off the table. Death penalty cases can, in some circumstances, take seven years to go to trial. By withdrawing the death penalty and offering Stephen the plea deal, the case, which had already dragged on for three years at that point, was put to rest in a much quicker manner. Lauren's family would not have to endure several more years of waiting for a trial, which would bring many painful memories flooding back. It feels good to finally get justice for Lauren, her family, and the community. But considering the great tragedy, nothing can bring happiness. Cook said. Stephen, 28 years old at the time, was sentenced to life in prison. The earliest possible year he will be eligible for parole is 2041. According to Stephen's written statement, this is what happened in the early morning of Sunday, June 26, 2011. At around 4.30 a.m., Stephen put on a mask and a pair of gloves. He used the master key found in his room to enter Lauren's apartment. He insisted that he did not sexually accost her. He watched her sleeping for a short while, but she woke up when she heard the floor creak. 
When she saw Stephen, she told him to quote-unquote get the fuck out. Stephen jumped onto the bed, put his hands around her neck, and began strangling her. The two struggled, which resulted in them falling off the bed. On the floor, Stephen continued to strangle Lauren, eventually killing her. He placed her in the bathtub in her apartment and went back to his apartment across the hall, where he stayed all day. At around midnight on June 27th, he returned to Lauren's apartment and dismembered her body using the hacksaw the police found in the laundry room. He then put her remains in black trash bags and disposed of them in different bins around the law school campus across from Barrister's Hall. In February 2018, Stephen filed a petition for a new trial, despite having never gone to trial in the first place. He represented himself because Stephen thinks he's smarter than everyone else, claiming that his constitutional rights were violated throughout the investigation and before the trial. Here are Stephen's grounds for filing for a new trial. He argued that investigators documented in their report that he, Stephen, was verbally unresponsive, showed little evidence that he was mentally engaged, and appeared to be in a catatonic state while he was being interviewed. But the investigators did not wait for him to be cleared health-wise by medical staff before they asked him for consent to search his apartment. He was basically arguing that he was in a state of shock and not mentally fit to consent to a search. He went on to say that his attorneys failed to pursue that line of defense. His second grounds were that the district attorney's office failed to provide him with the requested documents in preparation for trial. Being a recent law graduate, he wanted to do his own research before the trial, but claimed he didn't get the documents in a timely manner. The third grounds were his claim that the judge was prejudiced towards him as he, the judge, participated in the investigative stage of the case. His fourth grounds were that his defense attorneys failed to look at and present the material that Stephen provided them. The judge rejected his bid for a new trial. I actually think that Stephen got an excellent deal, considering he was convicted of murdering his neighbor, dismembering her, and literally dumping her body parts in the trash. I'm pretty sure Stephen knew he had no chance of getting a new trial, and he knows he got a good deal. He just wanted to play lawyer for a while and strut around the courtroom like he had some kind of authority. As of 2021, Stephen is 35 years old. He will be 55 when he is first up for parole in 2041. He is currently serving his sentence in Hancock State Prison in Sparta, Georgia. Lauren's remains, excluding her torso, are still missing to this day. On August 6, 2011, a funeral service was held for Lauren at St. Mary of the Mills Church in Laurel, Maryland. Karen and Bill Giddings have said that they always try to focus on the fun-loving and ambitious woman Lauren was. They do not let the horrific manner in which she died take away from their memories of her. She never lost sight of what life was really about. She lived more in her 27 years than most people do in 100, Karen Giddings said. A year after Lauren's death, David Vandiver spoke to local news station 13WMAZ in Macon. He said, It's been hell. 
Time, as many people say, heals all wounds, but if it does, it hasn't even begun yet. It's just been a mix of heartache and anger. The Giddings family have set up the Lauren Teresa Giddings Scholarship, which provides tuition support to students who are strong academically but would struggle to pay college fees. The scholarship favors students who are first in their family to attend college, as Lauren was, and those who hope to go on to careers in law or special education. Every year since Lauren's murder, Agnes Scott College has hosted the Lauren Giddings Memorial Walk and Softball Tournament. All of the money goes towards the scholarship, which was first awarded in the fall of 2018. If they could just enjoy and pursue their dreams a little bit in the way that Lauren did, we would be so happy, Karen Giddings said. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked it. Please consider giving me a five-star review on iTunes and subscribing wherever you're listening now. If you'd like to support the show, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash talkmurder. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time, friends.